Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. This is an Indian Genes special episode and as you already know our guest today needs no introduction. So I'm not even going to attempt that. He has inspired me and I'm sure all of us since 1984 and has agreed to speak exclusively to Indian Genes knowing that what we are trying to do here through this platform is inspire students and the next generation of scientific researchers discoverers and seekers to also better understand the morals principles and responsibilities that go with space exploration and scientific research we at indian genes now proudly present an opportunity of a lifetime to get to know the person behind the legend in a conversation where he freely speaks his mind so let's get to what you all have been waiting for an inspiring conversation with none other than our national hero and the only indian citizen to visit space wing commander rakesh sharma so a huge huge welcome to you from everyone at indian genes everyone who's listening to us today uh, this is a very very special moment especially for me and i just hope i'm going to be able to continue this conversation without getting into the moment of it because uh, you are one of the first people that inspired me to do what i'm doing today and i remember in 1984 i was a, a 10th grade student and that was when you took off with uh, being the first indian in space it was that moment that actually inspired me to do what i'm doing get into science and uh, uh, for you as well uh, how how do you look back now and uh, thank you for making time to talk to us thanks jokem i'm very happy to be here and share uh, my experience you've already explained the background to me that uh, most of your listeners uh, are going to be students and uh, it's quite a coincidence that uh, in 1984 you were in 10th grade and uh, i must say that when gagarin went up i was pretty much a 10th grader myself and i got interested <laughs> in the subject of space just like you did uh, it was gagarin really who who started the journey for all of us and it has been extremely uh, interesting not only for me at that point because it had never been done before uh, the entire world was uh, tuned in so to speak uh, into that particular moment and so um, like uh, everybody else uh, one lapped up all that was uh, written all the printed word uh, a few pic uh, photographs and that's about it it was the uh, launches were not really covered live in those days and uh, so that's where it started you asked me as to what i'm doing currently <laughs> well i'm mostly doing all that i had ever wanted to do and uh, never had the time for for example i'm writing a book and it's been 
a painful progress. <laughs> I, I, I guess I don't have the discipline to sit down every day and, and devote uh, X number of hours, which I'm told is how books are written. And uh, apart from that, today I'm um, a part of the National Advisory Council for Gaganyan, which is, as you know, our uh, first attempt at manned space flight. And all of that entails a lot of travel and preparation. Uh, apart from that, I'm enjoying the natural environs of the Nilgiris. I live in Kunur, and uh, we are blessed with, uh, with nature in, in these parts. So that's what I'm busy with. Oh, that's that's a beautiful place, and uh, uh, nothing better than being close to nature. If especially you're writing a book and you need time to focus on a book, right? I just I just want to get back to a very interesting comment you just made, uh, where you were a tenth grader and you got inspired, uh, like today or unlike today, with social media and quick bite information. In those days, uh, for you to get information on that particular launch uh, when it was done, you would have had to get probably just a newspaper or a magazine? Or, or how did information flow at that time uh, without the internet? Well, mostly, mostly through the print medium. And absolutely everything uh, used to be recorded. And it came through the newspaper as to what these guys have eaten today, uh, how many more uh, hours are they going to be up in orbit, uh, so those kind of things, you know, but it was essentially a one-way traffic for information, unlike uh, the way today, uh, A, you have, of course, the internet search, you have videos, you have live launches, and there's so much happening. And uh, you are, uh, all the viewers and listeners are so much a part of the experience today. It wasn't so like that, so one had to really wait it out. But I must uh, provide a caveat here in the sense that uh, one was interested to follow that particular activity. It was uh, something new for humans to do, and therefore it was captivating. But uh, to be quite frank, uh, I wasn't inspired enough to uh, dream that one day I will be up in space, primarily because at that time, my, my, my dream was to uh, fly uh, fighters for the Indian Air Force. Mm -hmm. and, and I wasn't going to let go of that dream. It, it just so happened that later on in life, my first dream made the second uh, possible second in the sense that even though I had never dreamt to go up uh, uh, for a full-time career in space as an astronaut, I became one. But it was my first dream which led me to it because um, I was uh, a fighter pilot and a test pilot and the selections were made uh, from the batch of test pilots of the Indian Air Force and I found myself in that list. That, that's really inspiring. And what was that moment like when you officially or when you knew that, okay, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of training that was involved and there was, like you said, the selection process would have been, uh, you know, extremely precise. They would have been looking for the right individual. 
as a person, when you first got the news that, okay, you are going to be the person who selected and going to be the first Indian in space, what were the thoughts that went in, uh, in your mind at that moment when you sat alone with yourself thinking about this? You know, um, this uh, concept of being the first Indian in space, uh, this is a kind of a label that one has was uh, given and one has inevitably <laughs> worn ever since. Uh, that never, ever figured. Uh, what figured was, okay, uh, here is a chance uh, to be, one felt very privileged, very lucky to have uh, gotten that opportunity which so few humans had before me. I mean, I was the 128th human, so only 127 had been up before me. So in that sense, it was very special. So it was, I was full of curiosity and obviously uh, attendant excitement to be taking part in, in something. So, well, let's, let's just call it unusual. Uh, so... So that is where I was coming from. And of course, the overriding feeling was that, uh, listen, this is really important. So well, let's do it right. Let's not screw up. Uh, one is representing the country, the Indian Air Force. Uh, one is uh, professional enough to, you know, be, one was chosen because one's a test pilot and now's the time to deliver. So... So let's do it right. Being a professional or being a professional test pilot, was there ever any pressure? Was there ever any stress that you may not have thought of it uh, in the manner that you were going to be the first person in space? But inevitably, as it goes, as you move towards that final day, you would have been, you know, talking to a lot of people around you to see the media attention that you were getting. Did that have any impact on your preparation, your training? And how does a professional like you keep these things out of their mind? How do you separate what you're actually going to do on a mission from what is expected from you? Um, you see, it's like this. Uh, uh, experience is, is a very important thing. And uh, one has, uh, when you join the Indian Air Force, um, you are exposed to um, many, many new experiences time after time. You're always on the learning curve. You're always uh, experiencing stuff which you've never done before. So in that sense, it was an extension of that kind of a life. Um, so one was quite prepared uh, from, the, from the preparation standpoint. Uh, the processes were not very different in the sense that you practiced and practiced and practiced over and over again till it became second nature to you. And ultimately, if you've done it right, then uh, the actual conduct of something you've never done before feels like just another day at the office. And I must say that that, that is how uh, flying training or spaceflight training uh, for professionals, that's how the training regimen is designed and that's how uh, it is conducted. So uh, 
by the time we did go up into space, it was it was like like another job that had to be done. Sure, it was uh, not easy. One needed to separate personal emotion out of it. In this case, the emotion was uh, excitement and curiosity, and and in perhaps in in doing a, a dangerous flight test, it was probably more about professional reputation and one's own life. So so there were differences in that sense. But from the standpoint of remaining focused on the job to the exclusion of everything else, that came with experience. And by the time I, I did go up, I was, uh, I would say, a relatively experienced test pilot. So that uh, stood me in good stead. And if you could, uh, talking about your training, is there anything you could share with us, uh, an interesting story or something that we don't know uh, that you went through during your training and would be quite interesting for some of us to hear? Well, um, the thing about spaceflight training is that uh, you cannot replicate zero gravity on Earth. And yet, when you go up into space, that is your life. You're living in zero gravity. And uh, it isn't as if you have never experienced it. You've never experienced it for more than 20 seconds at a time. And that is the special kind of training which is uh, given to you, uh, taken up in uh, an, uh, a, a big transport aeroplane uh, where the aeroplane from inside is uh, padded up uh, and uh, made to perform a maneuver where the nose of the aeroplane is uh, is uh, uh, in a pre-programmed manner made to bunt forward uh, while it's riding the curve. Uh, conditions of uh, zero gravity exist within the aeroplane, but because it follows that curved path in about 20 seconds, it is hurtling towards the earth and you've got to pull the aircraft out of the dive and you go from zero gravity to maybe three times the force of gravity. So that is why you can't experience it for more than 20 seconds. So you vaguely know what it is like, but when you live that life, uh, it, that, is the, that is when it hits you, what the difficulties are, and those are things you face for the very first time and you kind of have to learn it on the job. So this was the interesting bit uh, with, the, with the training. Apart from that, physical training and simulator training. Now, these were things which one was used to, one had done it on the ground, one it was required even to fly airplanes, uh, fighter aircraft. So... So all of that we were used to, I was used to. And as this was a collaboration during your training, was there any need for you to uh, learn Russian or be able to communicate in certain uh, keywords? Yeah, that was the difficult part, I would say, yes. Uh, learning uh, the Russian language uh, and you had to be uh, comfortable enough in that language because the entire uh, communication with mission control on the ground 
uh, had to happen in Russian. The intercommunication with the crew members while in space had to happen in Russian. So one had to be uh, pretty comfortable with the language and one had to learn that language uh, before you start. We were taught all the technical stuff in Russian. So it was a pretty, pretty uh, difficult thing to do. And um, so mastering that language, mastering it enough to understand the tech stuff and then uh, uh, to utilize it for essential communication. So yes, Russian uh, is not a very easy language. The grammar is not easy. Uh, so, so yes, that was difficult. And I'm sure you would have taught them uh, a few Hindi words as well during your mission or during your interaction with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did, we did. Like they heard Sarajan Siacha and they asked me, yeah, oh, what did that mean? And of course, I had to explain it to them. Yeah. And uh, since they were looking at the same uh, piece of earth at that time, they had no choice but to agree with what I was saying. <laughs> I would like to come back to the Sare Jansiacha a little bit later because I think uh, that that particular statement is now the mission statement for a lot of us. And I just want to get back to, uh, I, I'm just trying to, uh, get into, I'm, I'm still in your, uh, trying to understand how you were going through this. So let our listeners take them with you through this journey. Uh, what was your first reaction or what was going through your mind when you were walking towards the spacecraft, knowing that, okay, the training is over, this is the day, and I'm going to be getting into this machine, and I'm going to be blasting off with this kind of power. And uh, what was going on in your mind at that moment, just before you got into the, the spacecraft? You know, Joachim, the, the, the state of mind was really no different than approaching the first flight of any aeroplane one was doing or approaching mm. the first time one is going to experience, carry out maybe a trial. So as far as I was concerned, for me, it was the first time and it was, it was a test like no other. Test for me primarily because... They were. I had to perform certain duties. I had to monitor certain stuff, and I was just focused on that to the exclusion of everything else. So, uh, so your question as to what else was going through, nothing much except for what needed to be done to you know step at a time. So you you proceed up, and you had practiced enough number of times, how you enter, how you take your seat, how you strap up, and the you go through your checklist. So all of that was uh, a practiced uh, process. And, and one needed to remain focused because uh, all of it was sequential and uh, one had to keep following that sequence. So the focus was on the job that needed to be done more uh, to the exclusion of everything else, till one reached orbit, of course. And then, there, then one was like, uh, uh, allowed oneself some spare time to get amazed and, and, and look around. And as usually happens, everybody uh, peers out of the window and looks for one's own country. And, uh, and that's how uh, those eight days began for me. And with training, as we're just getting into training at the moment, how has it changed or has it changed 
for astronauts that are preparing today compared to uh, what you were doing? Because you're involved with training, you're also involved with compliance and, and setting up of the training. Have things actually changed fundamentally or are there other areas in training that has now been incorporated? You know, let me um, preface my answer uh, with the disclaimer that uh, unlike other astronauts who've been up into space, uh, I returned back to my old job, that of test flying. And the reason for that is that uh, India never had a manned space program. So uh, I could not get absorbed. Uh, it, I could not continue uh, in the specialization that I had gained. Uh, there was nothing for me to do. So, which is why I returned back to my old job. And therefore, I have not remained current. Uh, had I say, being in America and returned back, then, of course, I would have continued to be a part of the astronaut corps, continued, maybe have uh, flown three or four times uh, before I took up a job in NASA. So that would have been a different trajectory. Uh, here, I returned back to my job and I was cut off from space in that sense, except now when... Uh, Gaganyan was launched. So now I have returned. So I do not have a first-hand knowledge of how things have changed uh, in this uh, uh, region. So I, I'm a, I will not be able to answer your question with uh, any level of authority. Right. Being a career astronaut today, what, what are the opportunities or possibilities for people who are listening to us? Uh, has that changed today or looking at the future with Gaganyan and with our future missions? Can people actually look at uh, being career astronauts? You know, what I'd like to uh, emphasize here is that uh, everybody has a mental image of an astronaut as a guy who sits at the controls and then blasts off into space. Now, it is not, does not necessarily have to be so. Anybody who goes up into orbit, whether you're a researcher, whether you're an engineer, whether you are uh, somebody who is uh, taking a ride uh, as part of um, uh, the private sector that has designed a satellite and, and you're going up there to ensure that that satellite is commissioned and functions in orbit, all of you guys are going to be called astronauts. So really speaking, uh, <laughs> don't have that mental image that uh, the only way to go up into space is to join the Indian Air Force and become a fighter pilot or a pilot and then a test pilot and then get absorbed and get selected uh, not necessarily so. It's not going to be like that. Once we do have um, a space program that is up and running and the numbers do increase, then it all depends on what kind of missions that ISRO chooses for itself. And before that, of course, uh, ISRO, ISRO will have to decide as to 
which trajectory is going to follow? Uh, are we going to be in a space race with others, which I hope not? Or are we going to do our own thing? How are we going to uh, utilize space uh, for the benefit? Uh, are we going to do it for ourselves? Are we going to do it for prestige? I mean, there are so many variables. But uh, end of day, if uh, exploration will continue, have no doubt about that. Uh, we perhaps will go and settle, we will settle uh, on the moon and uh, maybe later Mars. So to set up shop, to set up a home elsewhere, there are so many skills that will be required. So I think what is more important here is to, of course, choose uh, space-related sciences uh, that you are passionate about, uh, become an expert in your field, and, uh, and that field will perhaps be required to set up uh, the first city on the moon, environment, controlling the environment, ensuring it that it provides uh, you know, uh, survivability for the humans uh, in that uh, hostile area, which is basically a vacuum, uh, building materials, structural engineers, uh, electronics guys, communication fellas. You know, there are so many disciplines that go into making, and everybody who's going to be working on that surface is going to be an astronaut. So, so, so there is so much uh, which is going to open up. Uh, you really do not, you need to widen your own horizon. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that you've got to be very sure that you are passionate in what you're going to be doing uh, because this is an environment which is challenging. It is unusual. It is like, um, it's not easy to live in Antarctica. Let me tell you that. Ask the guys who come back from there. Uh, it's it, it's mm. quite like being locked in during the pandemic, you know. And that has not been easy for a whole lot of us. And um, so, so all of that goes into the mix. So one has to think clearly uh, who one wants to be. And if one wants to be an astronaut, just be ready for the long haul. And it is, it is a fair amount of hard work. So be prepared for that. Uh, there's no better outcome than, like you said, looking out of that window. And we do hear a lot about the overview effect that astronauts go through. Uh, you're probably the only one uh, we can ask if, if this is true. And what was that like for you, uh, the first looking out of that window and seeing what you saw? Well, um, you know, one builds up such a mental image. It's, it's like having heard a heck of a lot of reviews uh, about a movie and then going and watching one and then say, oh, okay, so this is it, you know? So it, it's, it's like that. It's, 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 it's the end of anticipation. <laughs> so in that limited sense, it is a bit deflating, but... When you then see the various textures, the diversity of our planet, the deserts and the coastlines and the 
hills and the forests and and you begin to realize what a beautiful planet we live on and then your thoughts then start going towards uh, why do we have to be mired in conflict and you start thinking about sustainability because when you look the other way uh, till as far as the eye can see you know that there is no other uh, habitable planet quite like planet earth so uh, so these are the thoughts which rush into you and of course the uh, the experiences like watching a sunrise from space watching a sunset 45 minutes later and if you miss the spectacles waiting another 45 minutes and watching another sunrise because it takes 90 minutes to go around the earth once so so there are tremendous visual compensations even though uh, so visiting is fun but working in that environment takes some doing because in zero gravity not only you but everything you're working with is also flying around so so uh, it you you got to reprogram and relearn how to do things so so that's that's how it is it's it's not an easy place to work in and for you in those 8 days what was the toughest task or toughest moment for you i think the uh, the difficult part was to um <laughs> it sounds funny but uh, the thing is uh, the most distracting things used to be interviews because we were okay. so packed work wise there's so much work to do because it's is such an expensive uh um uh, activity that every moment is packed uh you know you want to uh, get your bang for your buck so so you from the time you land up you set up your experiments you carry out the experiments you jot down the results you document it and you are ready with the next experiment uh there is a uh, reports to be given to the mission control so you know back to back things are happening and uh, and an interview appears like a bit of an intrusion because you got to make time for those kind of things and stop doing what you had to do so so that's where it is and that's that's how uh, those were the difficult parts to to keep going back to work and then keep keep coming back for this kind of stuff uh taking the camera around and exp- of course uh, you do understand that people from your country are waiting to be a part of that experience so one did all of that and i i, I hope it was well received where when i took the doordarshan uh, when i took the camera and those live pictures were beamed by doordarshan to the rest of india uh, i hope it 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 helped at least the student community we all remember those pictures and it's great to know that you were the one behind that and actually doing it so uh, that that's another part an astronaut should be ready for you got to be ready to film in space as well right <laughs> yeah indeed we were taught how to handle cameras whether it's the hasselblad or the nikon or some all those camera work you know we we were trained for that wow and you were mentioning a little bit earlier about once you did go up in space and you looked at the whole globe let's say in totality this brings us to the 
uh, impact of collaboration in all future missions to space because uh, you know unless there's a there's an asteroid on its way by default uh, i do not know whether people are going to collaborate for missions in space but uh, that should be the approach that countries come together we share the uh, the resources we have there's effective resource utilization and then we plan ahead where we could probably use a combination of humans and machines being sent up in space and there has to be a benefit to to everybody involved and and what are your thoughts on that you know what i'm seeing is that the uh, level of cooperation between uh, spacefaring nations is on the increase but uh, it is limited to pure science only because government funding for such science has to be shared across uh, many disciplines within a particular country given the budgetary constraints that countries have and uh, so here in in this domain nations do not mind jointmanship and sharing of accolades but any activity that has the potential to generate ip with the further intent to generate a revenue uh, it continues to remain under the protective umbrella of the country which is spending on that kind of research uh, like what has been happening say uh, with the pharmaceutical industry the world over we have invested money in uh, uh, researching and bringing out this drug uh and we then we have to compete uh and and continue so we are going to charge the earth and so protectionism comes in so all of that happens but when it is pure science then nobody has enough money to go it alone so there they don't mind you had mentioned uh, in in passing about how the world needs to collaborate uh say uh, when it comes to protecting itself uh from asteroids yeah yeah i think that's uh, uh a very good example because uh the problem with asteroids is that the earth is rotating around its axis and uh we have no idea that if an asteroid comes our way which is the country that's going to get written off and the collateral uh damage and the climate change that's going to occur as a result of that that is going to affect uh, uh almost every other country uh, some scientists feel that it could be the beginning of another ice age so in this in this for us to secure our future we will need every country to cooperate uh, perhaps uh to to give uh, uh some funding uh as a percentage of their gdp uh because every country is at risk uh so uh today we have the technology to look deep into space and to track an asteroid heading towards earth and uh we have to develop more technologies to go out there intercept that asteroid and nudge it off its path the earlier we do that the lesser you need to nudge for it to miss uh, planet earth 
So if we can cooperate to secure our future, I see no reason why we shouldn't be able to cooperate to secure our present. And that brings me <laughs> to one of my, uh, um, well, how should I put it? Uh, I feel that is what we should uh, use space for, for the greater uh, benefit of mankind. And uh, for that to happen, uh, we all need to cooperate and uh, share. For example, let's uh, mm, let's say uh, remote sensing data. Mm -hmm. We have already established that uh, remote sensing, uh, Earth resources data, uh, you know, can give a fillip to uh, a country's economy, and it has been so well demonstrated by ISRO. Mm -hmm. uh, our uh, our remote sensing uh, agencies have done a great job. Our sensors, which are up in space, uh, have helped us with our fisheries, with our plankton, with our with our agriculture, with our um, you know prospecting for ores, and it has it's made a big difference to our economy. Now, if we can do that for each other, I would say that for let's say for our uh, if you start sharing this kind of uh, information with the less developed nations in our region, then I think what we are launching is a peace offensive in, uh, instead of uh, uh, generating conflict in the region. Because it, then what you are empowering are developing nations to come up to your level because ultimately it is it is the inequitable distribution of resources and uh, wealth which causes conflict so if we are going to be lucky in uh, in being where we are and uh, sitting on uh, ores which is being coveted by the next nation so there is the seed for conflict now, if we keep following this kind of a model, when we go up into space and colonize the moon, then uh, like what we've done in Antarctica, we've gone to Antarctica, we've drawn lines out there, and we've said, you know, whatever I'm going to find within this square belongs to me. And that is what a, another country also has said, which has set up a station there. Mm -hmm. So now what happens is that when I look over my fence and I find that that guy's square, uh, the other country's uh, place has uh, come up with something a lot more valuable. So I will start thinking of dispossessing him, which is what really the years of bloody conflict on our planet has been. And we still haven't broken out of that cycle. So we need to find a new way of, of living, sustainability, cooperation. You know, like, like our cultural ethos says that uh, the world is one, uh, we are the world, that kind of a thing. And I think we need to make that work here before we start going and colonizing elsewhere. 
Otherwise, what we will be doing really is exporting conflict into space. You have articulated such a very clear vision for for space uh, research. And I think that is extremely important. And I was wondering if if this is the time to probably intervene a little bit more aggressively, and I mean intervene for nations, to come up with some sort of uh, jurisdiction. Because we already have Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk who are privatizing space, and it's going to end up with space mining. And if that continues, you're going to have corporate wars in space. Of course, absolutely. You will have corporate wars in space. See, now, that's the thing. Uh, When private sector gets into the act, be very clear. The private sector is there only to monetize whatever space has to offer. Because the private sector has to answer its shareholders. Who's going to be the policeman? Well, A global policeman on Earth has not worked, as we have seen, as the conflicts that are carrying on on Earth. A global policeman uh, in space, I'm at doubts if it's going to work. Who's going to do that policing? The United Nations? Well, the United Nations slogged for years and came up with a climate treaty, and uh, President Trump comes and walks out of it. Mm. Similarly, there is already a treaty with the United Nations for the peaceful uses of outer space. And what do we have today? We have started the militarization of space. There is a unified space command with the US Air Force. Okay, there is the uh, weapons being developed, uh, directed energy weapons to take out assets uh, in near Earth orbit. So, uh, so so who's going to do the policing? What needs to happen really is a fundamental shift in our behavior patterns. We need to understand that we are interdependent. All that we've done is we've integrated our economies, but we have done it for profit. And really speaking, the culprit here is the economic model which we have been following, which has been fueled by capitalism. But that's another uh, discussion by itself. So, so really speaking, it's the behavioral change of, of knowing that we are all just like, just like environment, uh, just like pollution on Earth doesn't respect boundaries, you know. And if, if you're going to make a mess here, it's going to affect me next door after a while. So if you move manufacturing into uh, zones where environmental laws are lax, uh, you're not helping yourself in the long run. Why? Because the effluents which are going to be dumped in our rivers are going to end up in our oceans and ultimately the ocean currents will carry them to your seaboard, wherever you are. So it's all interconnected, you know. We, for us to survive as a human species, we need to respect each other much more than we do. Short-term vision is not going to get you very far. That's so true. And I think some of the signs or cracks in the wall are already visible because I think the International Space Station is, has funding from the U.S. on, uh, I think, 2025 
is the deadline. We don't know whether the funding would continue and what happens to the International Space Station if the U.S. stops funding it. Yeah, that's right. So, so we are really opening the door a bit wider for the private sector. I'm hoping that these thoughts resonate with the students because the, our generation has failed. It's the, it's the next few generations which can hopefully uh, slow down the slide and maybe ultimately turn it around. Uh, so ISRO has been one of the most amazing success stories that we've seen. And India does tend to play down its uh, achievements as far as uh, whether it's culturally or whether it's achievements of the past or whether it's soft power that we have spread all over the world. Uh, would you like to tell us uh, what you find uh, inspiring or what do you find uh, you know, ISRO to be standing for as an Indian organization? Well, I, I would say that uh, whether it is Chandrayaan or Mangalyaan, or these are recent events, uh, you have got to hand it out to ISRO for achieving milestones that have not been within the grasp of uh, developed nations. And I specifically refer to them getting it right the first time. Sure, Chandrayaan 2 was a disappointment, but then the law of averages will catch up sometime. This is the nature of the game. Ask the likes of Tendulkar or Fedra. But before I come to what the future is like and how come ISRO has achieved the level of success, I think, basically, I think uh, what works is if you give people a free hand and willy-nilly, ISRO has had a free hand. The reason for that is that uh, Chairman ISRO reports directly to the Prime Minister. Uh, he is, Chairman ISRO is also Secretary Department of Space. And what that happens is, what that does is that it removes a lot of bureaucratic layers en route. So decision-making becomes easier and, uh, you know, they are able to convince the chief executive of the country for, for the need. So there is more, uh, the, the programs uh, and the plans are, are seamless. And, and that is what happens. So uh, the thing is that um, that is what has fueled ISRO's uh, success. Uh, thus far. But um, before that, one has to, before one can say what is the future potential, um, I think one has to be privy to what ISRO's long-term vision for space exploration is going to be. I do hope that we remain protected as we have been up till now and do not fall into the trap of getting into a space race with other nations. You know, up until now, ISRO, I must say, has walked its own path. It has focused on obtaining socioeconomic benefits for its own population. And what ISRO has achieved thus far is to, I would say, win the respect of other spacefaring nations. But now it is time to move up 
another level. And I have no doubt that in this realm, we'll be able to hold our own. Uh, we should be able to, and we, I think, can play with the big boys and develop new technologies, undoubtedly. And But I'm more interested in how we put to use the technologies we are going to be generating going forward. So I fear there has been talk lately of changing ISRO's managerial structure. And uh, I hope that due deliberations take place before such a thing is done, because I do believe that uh, one should not be attempting to fix something that is not broken. Yes, if there are, uh, uh, if we recognize that uh, scaling up is required and that the current setup uh, is not conducive to permit scaling up at, at the level that is required, well, then that, that is different. But more than that, I don't think uh, uh, introducing more bureaucracy uh, in, in, in the running, in the way ISRO functions, should be um, encouraged. One of the reasons also be a little uh, some pressure because the Chinese are now building their second space station and have offered the United Nations uh, joint flying missions with other countries. So does India feel that they need to uh, keep up in some way to this? Um, I, you see, I think India has already won its spurs in the sense that mm. it, it, it does not need to prove to anybody what we are capable of. So in that sense, uh, if you want to uh, develop your own space station primarily because you want a research lab over which you have full control, well then, uh, I, I don't understand uh, whether the cost-benefit analysis uh, proves that such a thing is required. If there are overtures already that some space is being offered, in fact, I would think that the International Space Station, uh, which came up, that was a missed opportunity for us. Uh, though, to be fair, ISRO at that time was fully focused on realizing Vikram Sarabhai's vision, and therefore, it didn't want to be to be disturbed from realizing that vision. So it 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 didn't want to spread itself too thin and take part in the International Space Station. But here's a concept where a lot of work has been carried out and a lot of IP generated for the countries that were a part of that. So uh, uh, it, it all depends. We really need to read the fine print if China is offering its uh, permanent uh, presence in near-Earth orbit uh, to other countries. Uh, what is the fine print? Uh, who's going to uh, keep the IP? How long? Um, you know, what will be the charges for utilizing that facility? You know, uh, so all of that, uh, because really the devil is in the details. So 
Uh, I think we should be open to uh, cooperation between nations, uh, provided it is it is fair and just, and uh, uh, and, and that's how we should go. Because I don't think uh, uh, confrontation is the way forward. Uh, cooperation is. It is it's good for uh, individual nations. Uh, their budgets will go farther. The uh, IP that is going to be generated, if you can uh, generate it for um, for the for the human species, uh, as the United Nations has already pro- proclaimed, that uh, space is for the benefit of humankind. So you know these concepts. The time has come to things which looked. Uh, idealistic in the past, more and more we have begun to realize that we need to create conditions for that kind of idealism because we've tried every other ism. We've tried capitalism, we've tried communism, we've tried socialism, we've tried all kinds of religious dogma. Nothing seems to be working. We should try some humanism now. And and that's that's where I'm coming from. So uh, United Nations has already got that template. So let's all subscribe to it and move towards towards that bit to make things happen for the greater good of humankind. I don't think uh, anyone can disagree with you on that thought. And as you are also very closely involved in the Gaganyan mission, how is that going at the moment as far as the training is concerned? I think that is on in Russia at the moment. Uh, do we have an update on that? Yeah, it has started in Russia. And uh, it, of course, uh, uh, got sidetracked a bit because of the lockdown. Uh, so there will be delays on account of that. Uh, but after they get trained, then they, then they come back here and they will then have to be trained on the vehicle uh, they will be traveling uh, on, which will be manufactured by ISRO with ISRO's technologies. So so some amount of uh, on-type training on the vehicle they will be using, uh, training on that, simulators of that vehicle will be done. And uh, that's when they'll be ready for the first flight. Okay. And uh, there are four individuals at the moment that are going through this final training? That is correct. There are four of them. So what are we going to be calling them? Astronauts or cosmonauts? Well, I I don't think they've settled on that name yet, but it makes little difference. Uh, Astronaut, cosmonaut, the difference is only in the spelling. Uh, We probably end up calling us gaganauts because it's uh, Gaganyan, I give it that. The chi- Chinese call them taikonauts. I mean, what's in a name, as Shakespeare said? So l- let's lock you down on that one. I think Gaganauts is a very cool name. <laughs> let's push for Gaganauts and make that our contribution to this mission. Well, Gaganaut, let me, let me give it a caveat. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know what they're going to settle on. So, so let's see. So we definitely are going to be pushing for Gaganauts. That's a very cool name. <laughs> All right. So 
So we'll push for Gaganaut. Well, talking about Gaganauts, I think uh, this is a great time to bring in a question from one of our followers and a big fan of yours, I must say, 20-year-old Swamiraj Bhagawan Chauhan. He comes from the beautiful Shirdi in Maharashtra and runs the Young Space page on Instagram. He's doing a great job promoting science to students and his question to you is, do you think ISRO should focus more on its PR and advertising itself to make it look cool like SpaceX mm -hmm. and also when we compare recent launches of both agencies, the amount of money spent on camera work and advertising the launch of SpaceX Crew Dragon was huge compared to ISRO's Chandrayaan 2. What do you think about it and do you think ISRO will be working more on its branding in the future. Okay, now uh, I, I think that there are uh, two kinds of answers to that question. Um, see, the thing is, uh, firstly, uh, he's quoted the example of SpaceX and Dragon. Um, it is a question of uh, uh, supplying information to shareholders, private company, naturally they will want to know, listen, you're investing our money. You know, it's, it's not coming out of uh, Elon Musk's bank account, right? SpaceX, I mean, there are, there are people who invested with SpaceX. So they must know where their money is being utilized. That is one. Plus, SpaceX being a commercial organization, would ultimately want to show prospective customers that uh, they are a credible organization and the level of success they've achieved is in front of everybody. Um, in, and, and it is for the same reason that NASA uh, is, is pretty big on uh, showing uh, uh, launches live and uh, interviewing and allowing movie crews to film Apollo 13, Martian, etc. Because space uh, is an election is issue in, in America. Uh, it eats into the budget, which otherwise uh, the citizens would like, uh, say, healthcare to be... Uh, uh, more funding to be given for healthcare. So therefore, to take everybody on board, this is what it helps. In our case, where uh, space is really not an election issue, in our case, caste is, religion is, and a whole lot of other uh, distractions are bigger issues. But uh, I would still recommend that... Uh, ISRO spends uh, a sizable amount on this kind of uh, recordings and presentations because it attracts guys like me. Like, uh, like I said, I, you were a 10th grader, uh, Joachim. I was a 10th grader. And whatever little fragments of information that came our way, I mean, that, that kept us engaged. Likewise, in, in today's society, today's young is a very visual society. 
And I'm sorry to say they are also with short attention spans. So you need this kind of an intervention to first catch their attention and to keep them engaged because only then will we get the kind of uh, skill sets that we would need in future to run this kind of business, the space business. So it's going to be all for the good. It's not for the prestige alone. It is to motivate uh, youngsters who might take this up uh, and make it their passion and, and end up in this particular line required, in my opinion. Well, you were talking earlier about Earth resources. We've now got our sights on Moon and Mars resources. Will we be uh, able to manage that? <laughs> we, I'm hoping that we manage it better than the way we have managed Earth's resources. Exactly. Now, Earth's resources are being uh, spent at a phenomenal rate. The point is that people living on Earth have not yet realized or do not want to see the writing on the wall. And, and that writing says you cannot live a profligate lifestyle, a consumptive lifestyle on a planet that has limited resources. How can you look for sustainability if you're going to be living unsustainable lifestyles? So we really need to get that message into our heads and, and alter uh, our uh, paradigms before we move into space. Otherwise, you're going, to, you're going to ruin another perfectly good planet, just as we are doing such a great job with ours. So do we need some more aggressive policing or legislation for this to work? Sir, policing, legislation, none of this is going to work. It's the behavioral change which needs, and only education can do that. Value education, moral education. I don't think policing is going to do that. You know, we've got a big book of laws. Enforcement? Show me a perfect society. And then that is going to, that will bring in other ills, autocracy. It'll bring a closed societies. I mean, no, I think it's, it's behavioral change that is required, in my opinion. Education, value education. And uh, future communities in space would have to be built on the same principles you have just articulated, as uh, we don't want to replicate what we are doing here and take it up to a new uh, clean planet. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So in line with what we have just been discussing, I have another interesting question from one of our followers, Raika Singh, who is studying at the Lancers International School in Gurgaon. And her question to you is, when you went into orbit last time, you looked at Earth and said, Sare Jaha Se Acha. What would you say to the connected world today? 
considering all the changes that have happened since then? I said, uh, you know, let me put that answer in perspective. I was asked by the then Prime Minister, how does India look from there? And I honestly replied that it looks stunning. So today, when one goes up into space, and I'm, I'm only second guessing my colleagues who routinely do go up and work in space, it is very evident how interconnected we have become and how our, uh, nobody can live in a silo anymore. So the first thing that hits you or should hit anybody going up into orbit is that borders are not visible from space. If borders are not visible from space and if they are man-made, then I don't think we were ever required. It's, it's like a village, you know. It's The conflict started when a guy from another village came, came and uh, and started messing with the, your village. Now, if if the if we live in a global village, where is the conflict? So that's 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 where we need to move. So uh, today's astronauts, and I, I I would like to assure all your listeners that most, almost every astronaut, you know, has the same kind of a feeling. It's just that when they retire, some astronauts join the government and have to tow the government line. Some astronauts join the private sector and therefore have to do uh, what the uh, shareholders of the private sector require. And some astronauts, uh, like me, can speak their mind. So, so that's where it is. And we are really happy to have you doing exactly that here and speaking your mind. So thank you for that. To all the students that are listening to us today or on this particular episode, these are going to be the next group of scientists, innovators, collaborators, inventors. What would your message be to them? How should they be moving forward as far as looking after this dream, working as a global community in general? principles or values that they should be following, what would you like to tell them? I, um, I can only share uh, my thinking. Uh, if I look back at my own life and what has worked for me, I can only share that with you because I know that that is the truth. So let's go at it one by one. Don't do something that you are not passionate about. When you're passionate about something, you will find that somehow when you are hitting a wall and finding that your progress is blocked, you will find the energy to go around that wall. So be passionate. Choose a, a, choose a line that you're going to be passionate about and stick to it. So you've got to stay the course. That, that is one. Secondly, what I found out is that don't get intimidated by the 
degree of difficulty, imagined degree of difficulty, when, when there is an opportunity in front of you. My experience has been that if you jump into it, you will find that things are never half as difficult as you had imagined them to be when you're actually doing them. So don't, don't make yourself invalid just by your thought process. So that's, that's the other thing. And the third thing I, I've felt and I've learned is that there is no point chasing the most lucrative and well-paying career. And the reason for that is money never brought happiness to anybody. You ask all your richy rich friends, all right, they may have the latest iPod, but you ask their parents who've got a lot more than they have, but you will still find there is something missing. So it is what you are looking for is contentment. And your mantra for success should not be money, should not be position, it should just be. And, and let me tell you, what is success anyway? You need to, I think, revisit your idea of success. Success is, is not a well-paying job, is not a latest car you drive, it is not a corner office. Success, I in my book, is also if you find yourself in an area where you're rubbing shoulders with the best of the best in cutting-edge technologies, and, and, and you, you feel you are blessed to be there, that itself is fulfilling. That itself should be your reward. I mean, that, that is the way things have worked for me. And therefore, I wish all of you all the very best. Things are much more difficult. They are going to be much more difficult for you than they were for me. But nevertheless, if these basics, if, 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 if you steer this course and keep your moral compass tuned and calibrated, you will not go wrong. And I wish all of you all the very best. Oh, that's amazing and really well put together which actually brings me back to what you were talking about when we started this conversation. I just want to know a little bit more about, and that is your book. You mentioned that you were working on it. It's going to be very interesting to know what's actually going to be in that book. You know, the space experience of mine is just going to be a subset, a small subset of the book, because that is not what the book is all about. I want to capture my learnings in the book, some of which I've articulated during this interview. And I want to share my learnings with, with the reader of the book, whoever is going to be. That's all. That, that is all. Uh, I have no other motive for writing this book. My my. Uh, struggle and because of which my uh, progress has been tardy is I'm struggling with 
with how not to use the word I, because I believe that the word I devalues the content. <laughs> oh, I can't agree more with you on that. And I can see that you've done just that over this conversation. And listening to you speak, I think uh, we are all inspired again. We could actually call this particular interaction Inspiration 2.0 since 1984, as it happened growing up for me uh, in a neighborhood in Olem Malad in Mumbai. I still remember my dad passing me a paper cutting of you in your ast uh, astronaut gear. And as I mentioned, that inspired me to do uh, what I am doing today. I, I don't think I could ever have imagined that I would be having this conversation with you here today. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time for it to sink in. I'll have to listen to this whole podcast episode, maybe more than five times, and I realize that I'm actually having this conversation with you. <laughs> Well, thank you for your kind words, Joachim. And uh, please continue with this great job that you're doing. I've heard your uh, the, the links which you had sent me, and that's really highbrow stuff. So, which is why I was wondering whether there is uh, this is in the same genre or not. But uh, when you told me it is for the students, then uh, I, I had no problem in 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 taking part in this. So all the best to you. Please continue the wonderful work you're doing. And your team, of course. And, you know, we, we are nobody without our team. All the best, guys. Once again, a very big thank you to you. Uh -huh. You're welcome back anytime on this platform. It's all yours. And before we let you go, we would like to visit the famous quote just for us so that we can have it embedded in our website and our podcast forever. How would you do that for Indian genes? Have no doubt, uh, irrespective of what the churn that our country is going through, have no doubt that we are a blessed nation. And the reason for that is if you look back, give me some explanation as to why so many great minds, so many philosophers, so many saints have taken birth on this land. Why have they parted with their ancient age-old wisdom so freely? Why have they done that? Why here, only here? It is because our cultural ethos is Vasudeva Kutumbakam, which says the world is one family. And that is why you, I, and the rest of 1.3 billion of us need to be proud that we have taken birth on this land, which is why this land is Sare Jahan Se Achha. <laughs>